I'm Tavis Smiley. That's Charlie Wilson. We have been delighted all three hours of our program today to play some of the best of Charlie Wilson. Why? Because June is Black Music Month, and every day during the month of June, we feature a different artist all three hours of our program. So today, Uncle Charlie uh, has been featured, uh, and uh, again, he sounds as good as always. I mentioned earlier, in case you weren't tuned in, if you have not seen his NPR Tiny Desk appearance, you got to check that out. It's one of the best I've ever seen. Um, so uh, we celebrate Charlie Wilson today and uh, his iconic uh, music uh, on the soundtrack of our lives. In this hour, as promised, I'm going to introduce you to uh, the host of two new shows coming to KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, as we begin year three, we are pleased and thrilled that a recent independent research survey this week, in fact, uh, finds that this station remains the most trusted credible and reliable media source in Southern California for black listeners and beyond for the second consecutive year. We take that seriously, being trusted, being credible and being reliable. And to have a survey of almost 200 radio stations in this city alone um, uh, that um, uh, that we are in competition with, as it were, every day. Uh, to be regarded uh, as the most trusted, the most credible, and the most reliable for black listeners and beyond means a great deal to us. We take it seriously. Uh, to have received that honor for two consecutive years uh, means even more to us. And so you should know that when you listen to our host, uh, you can trust and believe what, what we have to say. Uh, and so we are, with that good news, ready to kick into, into, into gear <laughs> the third campaign uh, of this uh, station. So yesterday was the first day of year three, and we are off and running. So in this hour... Um, we're going to introduce you to, to, to some new hosts um, uh, who are joining our lineup. You, you met Tyrone Howard yesterday with this fine program, You Must Learn, Saturdays at 10 a.m. You met uh, Jill Monroe yesterday, uh, the host of RSVP with Jill Monroe. Her show premiered last night at 9 p.m., so she's on weeknights, 9 p.m. to 12 uh, midnight. Uh, on the back side of this hour, for you foodies, uh, yep, yeah, we finally got a food show. People have been stopping me everywhere I go. When you going to get a food show? Uh, we got a food show. And so you're going to meet Karen and Ernest, uh, the host of that program called Food for Thought, on the back side of this hour. But it's my great delight uh, to introduce John Wood Jr. Uh, and his fine program, The Reconstruction Project. Now, John Wood Jr. is a voice you probably heard uh, on, on occasion on Dominique DePrima's uh, program in the morning, First Things First. By the way, Dominique is in South Africa right now. So this week and next week, she's broadcasting live every morning from South Africa. It sounds awfully good. I was teasing yesterday, her phone line from South Africa sounds better than some of the phone calls I take here in the States. Uh, but Dominique, all this week and next week, live from South Africa, just really, really good stuff that Dominique is bringing us every day, so check uh, her out. But John Wood Jr., uh, I've known for, for some time, and Dominique has known him. He's been a guest on, on her program, uh, more so than mine. But I wanted to, to add him to the lineup. Let me tell you why. This may surprise you. Um, I believe that this station at its best uh, is about challenging folk to re-examine the assumptions they hold, helping folk to expand their inventory of ideas. As you well know, on my program, I am never afraid to engage with people who I don't agree with on everything. And I think there's value in having people on who see the world through a different prism, through a different lens. Uh, and um, John Wood Jr. and I don't see the world through the same lens on every single thing. But our conversations are always uh, organic. They're always dynamic. And they always push me. They push me to come up with better arguments, <laughs> better responses, better retorts. They make me rethink, uh, re-examine my own assumptions uh, politically. And so I am pleased to welcome into the studio and more importantly, more importantly, that is, to our lineup, uh, John Wood Jr. My friend, how are you, sir? 
Tavis, I'm doing very well, very well indeed. And uh, yeah, it is a pleasure and a privilege and an honor not just to be here with you, but to be a part of the KBLA family. I, I couldn't be more excited about it. We are excited as well. Uh, so John's program uh, called The Reconstruction Project will commence this Sunday, June 25th at 9 a.m. So every Sunday, just after Dr. Sunshine, uh, she's on 8 to 9 Pacific time. He comes on at 9 a.m. until 10 Pacific time. And then Nick Quartelai-Quarte, of course, with our Sunday public affairs program, uh, A More Perfect Union, is on 10 until 12. So John is right between Shalanda uh, and Nick Quartelai at 9 a.m. every Sunday starting this Sunday. Tell me about, as you as you conceive it, the Reconstruction Project. Yeah, happy to do so. Happy to do so. Well, really, really, it comes down to this, Tavis. I mean, this is going to be a program where we talk about politics, where we talk about history, um, where I'm bringing in folks who are leading voices, uh, uh, predominantly in the community, in the black community and so forth, to offer a range of perspectives on issues that listeners will be interested and concerned in. But the through line, the thread that's going to link each of these conversations is just sort of leaning into the lived experience, uh, into the personal experience of the folks that I'm talking to, to sort of elevate the fact that as we hear people say, but sometimes we don't ponder or dwell on enough, Black is not a monolith, and it really isn't, mm-hmm. right? There is a geography to the black experience that sometimes is obfuscated by the simplicity of that term, by mm-hmm. the simplicity of the phrase, right? And so, you know, you've got a wide range of folks who arrive at different ideological perspectives, but a lot of times it has to do with the fact that they came from a certain class background, that they came from maybe a predominantly black community versus a more assimilated black community, that they came from a religious background that might surprise you, right? That they came from a, sort of a, a, a life experience experience or an intersectionality that you might recognize as a listener to this program or somebody who's who's in the community, but who you might also stop and think, well, hey, to, you know, wait a second, you know, how on earth did that brother become a Mormon? Right. <laughs> right? And so, no, I mean, that, that, that's that's our point, because I just yeah. uh, just reached out to a man who's a leading figure in the LDS church. He's, mm-hmm. he's a black man. I had no idea until I, you know, until they put him up on my screen. And mm-hmm. so, look, but here's the thing. When we get a better and a fuller picture of the black community, we get a fuller picture of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. As individuals. But we can't do that kind of to your earlier point, Tavis, unless we're talking across sort of the, the divides in our experience as well as the divides in our perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. Because even perhaps especially if we're different, we have a lot to contribute to one another and again to our understanding of the community and of ourselves as individuals. So that's what the Reconstruction Project is really about. John is right. We are not a monolith. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe that we have to have robust conversations about all kinds of um, issues. As I say all the time, I am much more concerned in good ideas than ideology. Uh, and so because your political ideology may be different than mine, if you got a good idea, bring it to the table. I'm, I'm happy to debate it, happy to discuss it. Uh, but I, I, I want this station, uh, although we are proudly, uh, unapologetically progressive, I want us to be exposed to a range of ideas. And I think that uh, John Wood Jr. would do that every Sunday morning, starting this Sunday, June 25th at 9 a.m. More with John Wood Jr. and more about the Reconstruction Project when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. It's impossible, in fact, to fade. Charlie Wilson, he's just, I, I, I can't think of anybody who I am as impressed with their body of work when you consider all the hits that came from the Gap Band and then consider all his solo hits. But more important than all of that, consider all the years that Charlie was a drug addict and all that he did that could have, in fact, destroyed his instrument. And you listen to him, how good he sounds. His upper register as a singer is still there, and that gets lost when you don't do drugs as you get older. Uh, but his upper register is still there. He's still killing it. 
as I said earlier, that tiny desk thing where he really does a stripped down um, uh, performance is quite amazing to see. Uh, but I, I, I love, love, love Charlie Wilson uh, and all that he's done. And uh, as you'll see on the tiny desk performance, or for that matter, if you've ever seen Charlie in concert, he reminds me of Aretha, the queen of soul, who I miss and love dearly. Um, them two black folk are not afraid to just go to church in the middle of the show. They will just pivot. <laughs> and Charlie, whether you want to hear it or not, is going to give you his testimony, how God delivered him and got him off of drugs. He's going to have some church. And I, I'm always uh, uh, appreciative and, and tickled by the fact that he goes into a white environment like NPR on the tiny desk and still had church. And the white folk were just all into it. Uh, and so I just love that you don't shy away from your faith uh, and from your testimony and from your story. And Charlie Wilson has one. Uh, and so we celebrate again today uh, the musical legacy, the rich musical legacy ongoing of one Charlie Wilson. Back to our guest in this half hour, John Wood Jr., the host of The Reconstruction Project, a brand new show coming to KBLA Talk for 1080 this weekend, Sunday, June 25th at 9 a.m. And thereafter, every Sunday. At 9 a.m. So John Wood Jr., tell me, uh, obviously, there must be a John Wood Sr. somewhere. So tell me about John Wood Jr., uh, your, 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 your backstory, and I want to get into how you develop the political ideology that you have, however you define that. But tell me about your backstory. Yeah, absolutely, Tavis. Well, yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question. There is, an, there is indeed a John Wood Sr. Yeah. I can't really do justice to the, to the John Wood Jr. story without talking about my, without talking about my parents. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, it's funny. So you're talking about Charlie Wilson and the Gap Band and all that incredible music. My, my, my story really starts in music, mm -hmm. fundamentally, right? And, uh, you know, my mother, uh, well, my father, John Wood Sr., is a jazz pianist, a uh, white man mm -hmm. who uh, played and recorded with some of the greats, Joe Henderson, uh, Woody Shaw, trumpet player, Billy Higgins, famous drummer, founder mm -hmm. of the World Stage, uh, just right here in the, mm -hmm. right here in the Merck Park. Uh, my mother is an R&B singer. You'll hear her stuff playing on KGLH and on the radio in L.A. For, for, for years. She danced on Soul Train, you know, back in the early, early 80s, I guess, late <laughs> 70s. Actually. I love it. I love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, one of my uncles is uh, Mac 10 from the West Side Connection, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cousin's father, which is, you know, Ice Cube's group mm -hmm. after he left the N.W.A. But my grandfather on my father's side, a man named Randy Wood, uh, started the first radio show in the country to broadcast rhythm and blues and gospel music to a national audience. Ooh. You may be familiar with this, Tavis. It was started by, it was sponsored by, by a mail-order record shop of mm -hmm. the same name called the Randy's Record Shop. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, and of course, you know, again, Randy Wood, grandpa was a, grandpa was a white man, uh, but in his love for black music, he raised a son in my father who really defined the greatness of American popular culture, largely according to the greatness of black culture in particular, right? Mm -hmm. And so my dad was very much into black music, very much into jazz in particular, but also was deeply into boxing and baseball. His heroes in life growing up uh, were Willie Mays, Muhammad Ali, and Bill Evans, the, you know, the jazz pianist, white jazz that, pianist. That's, that's, a, that's a trifecta for you right there, That's man. a trifecta right yeah. there. So, you know, my dad sort of raised me with this kind of vision of black culture uh, that was that made it front and center in terms of the greatness of American culture. Mm -hmm. For me, it was like, you know, he would paint a picture of American life and say, "Hey, you've got you know George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and you got Joe Lewis and you got Duke Ellington. All these folks, you know, this is the pantheon of American greatness. You don't have it, in other words, without black popular culture, without black music, without black athleticism, etc." But it's funny because, of course, he's coming from outside of the community. So on the one hand, I've got my mother's side of the family, which is from L.A. Although if you go back some generations, we're from Little Rock, Arkansas and mm -hmm. so forth and like most black folks in LA came from the south mm -hmm. you know some generations ago on the other hand I have my father who's more conservative from Tennessee originally right uh, southern white family but immersed himself in sort of you know black community and 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 whatnot so I have that background growing up 
And um, and yet there's still very distinct differences between my mother's side of the family, my father's side of the family, mm-hmm. as you might imagine. Sure. Right. And so as I um, as I went on in life, you know, politics was an early passion of mine. Um, considered myself very much to be sort of a liberal activist. Um, I gave my first political speech opposing the Iraq war at the Culver City City Council meeting where we passed a resolution uh, opposing mm-hmm. opposing that war. Uh, found myself really dejected and sort of cynical about politics when George W. Bush got reelected. But when Barack Obama came along, uh, I saw in Obama somebody who really channeled both a lot of the values and virtues that I believed in, but also a lot of the life experiences that I could relate to, mm-hmm. just given the half, nature half of Half black, half white, yeah. Yeah, all of that. But within that, you know, Obama seemed to, you know, sort of have this desire to kind of bridge the divide in all mm-hmm. these directions, including politically and also racially. And I felt that very much in my own life. Republicans didn't see it that way, though. Republicans didn't particularly see it that yeah. way. <laughs> I mean, a lot of Democrats didn't see it that way either, yeah. but Obama brought an idealism that I resonated with. Mm-hmm. And so what happened at the time was, you know, I sort of dedicated myself to wanting to bring Republicans and conservatives sort of into the Obama movement. And so a lot of things happened at the same time. I met a woman from a traditional black Baptist family uh, in the Jordan Downs Projects in Watts. Uh, she became my wife. I experienced sort of a religious cons- uh, religious conversion. So culturally, I became a bit more, bit more traditional. She joined the military. We moved to a military town, uh, Fort Carson, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Mm-hmm. That made me a little bit more traditional. I was reading books I'd never read before, Wealth of Nations, Atlas Drugged. I was listening a lot to you and Larry Elder. And, you know, mm-hmm. Larry Larry said a lot of things that made some sense to me. I just looked up one day, Tavis, and I went down a list of about 100 or so issues while I'm on this expedition in life, part of which was oriented around sort of bringing Republicans into sort of the Obama fold. And I looked up and I realized that, holy cow, you know, out of, you know, out of 100 issues, I'm kind of right of center now in about 62 or 65 of them. And I really did draw out a list. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know me. I can, you know, I can get into the particulars. Very didactic. Yeah. Yet and yeah. still, though, yet and still, Tavis, the thing that remained consistent with, me, what, consistent with me was I really didn't like the way that Republicans and Tea Party was treating the president. I didn't like the tone, tonality of our political conversation in general. Mm-hmm. And I still very much believed in what I understood to be hope and change, sort of something that echoed forward with the ideal of Dr. King and the beloved community. I believed Mm -hmm. in that. And so when I came back to L.A., I thought, you know, I just want to be a voice for something that's positive, something that's unifying, something that can speak to the humanity in black and white, left and right, without glossing over the complexity and the disagreements between people. But how can I do that? So I decided to, to run for Congress with no resume, no money. I was the youngest uh, nominee in the state of California in that election cycle, youngest active nominee. Uh, ran against Max and Waters, friend of uh, yours. I was about right? to say, the person uh, you ran <laughs> against has not forgiven you for that as yet, but go oh, ahead. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but I've got all, I got all the respect in the world for Congressman Waters. Look, I tell people, I ran yeah. against Maxine Waters just because she happened to represent my district. Mm-hmm. Um, but truth be told, I was running to give voice to something positive. I was never really running, you know, against Maxine, you mm-hmm. know, per se. And so it was just a way, it was a way for me to sort of enter into the conversation in a way that I hope could be a continuation of the inspiration that Barack Obama brought mm-hmm. uh, to so much of American political life and his candidacy, albeit from the other side of the aisle, which I thought made it more valuable. In some real sense, mm-hmm. you know, and so following that, I tried to bring that sort of fraternal spirit to uh, institutional politics on a party level. I tried to bring sort of a more congenial way of doing politics to the GOP on an institutional level. I was vice chairman of the Republican Party, you know, uh, in Los Angeles County, mm-hmm. the largest Republican Party in America. Don't matter because it's about a quarter of the size of the Democratic Party <laughs> out here. So we don't win much. But I held that office and uh, almost got run out of town, uh, not for being too friendly with Democrats. I didn't get that far, but for being too friendly 
with the wrong Republicans. This is mm-hmm. his own story. This was during the Ron Paul thing, and he's at war mm-hmm. with the rest of the party. And then Trump came along, and that was kind of it. That was kind of it for me. So I'm yeah. still a registered Republican. Yeah. Today I lead an organization, help lead an organization called Braver Angels. It's America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization dedicated to depolarization. But what that really means is just creating the space for us to be able to empathize with each other across the political divide. And so my message has never really changed, Tavis. I'm about humanizing people. But I do believe that we we cannot achieve our potential as a country unless the black community is fully humanized within itself towards each Mm -hmm. other. And so to the extent to which there divides between us as a people, Tavis, I want to cross them. Yeah. I'm looking at my clock here, and you do this. uh, You will be doing it every week, so you better Mm -hmm. learn learn how to see this clock as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm watching it. I'm watching. I got four minutes left. Let me ask you, and I'm I'm glad I asked that question so the audience has a better understanding of your backstory, Mm -hmm. uh, a better understanding of the work that you're doing now through Braver Angels, this bipartisan group. I'm speaking with you at your convention in Mm -hmm. Gettysburg. That's correct. uh, Later later this summer. So I'm excited Mm -hmm. to travel back east to join you and some others Mm -hmm. to discuss some of these issues as I see it at least. Mm -hmm. But but very quickly here, what, what, what is your read of the GOP today, right now, real time? Yeah, right. Well, you know, I think that the Republican Party uh, has become a party deeply enthralled to the personality uh, of one man, mm-hmm. you know, Donald Trump. And uh, I, I hate to put it so simply. I mean, there's always a more complex backstory to everything. You know, I think that so much of polarization in America, we could talk about it in, in, in partisan terms, we could talk about it in racial terms. I think a lot of it is still geographical. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of it is still sort of the South versus everybody else. There's sort of a way in which, you know, a lot of white folks in the South, poor white folks, you know, on the one hand, you can say that there's inherited attitudes uh, towards other groups of people that may or may not be problematic. But a lot of it comes down to class. A lot of it comes down to the folks, to, to the fact that, you know, many folks feel isolated from mainstream culture in American society. And so somebody like Trump comes along and says, I love you. I'm your champion. Mitt Romney doesn't represent you. John McCain doesn't represent you. Barack Obama, damn sure, doesn't represent you. But I'm here and I feel just as aggrieved as you do against the people who sort of are the mainstream authorities in our society. Well, people rallied to that, right? And so, you know, when Dr. King died, he died in the process of trying to create relationships between poor white folks and African-Americans who are being persecuted in economic terms, at least, by the status quo of American political society. That's another project I don't want to abandon, Tavis, Mm -hmm. because as long as we have these deep divisions between us geographically geographically and class-wise, it's easier to exploit the racial differences as well for the purposes Mm -hmm. of bringing power to demigods. And I don't want to see that continue to happen. Let me offer this as the exit question, whether or not you believe in this moment in late modernity that that the demos, the American people Mm -hmm. writ large, are even interested in having any kind of conversation that bridges divides, that bridges gaps? Well, I'll put it to you like this. It's always a minority of people who are willing to really sort of lean into the idea that the people who represent the things that they hate may nevertheless possess a humanity that they can love, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I think that the power of even a small percentage of people who are willing to lean into that uh, is capable of fundamentally transforming the larger culture and spirit of the whole, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't but a small number of folks who were on the front lines of the nonviolent movement you know, giving forth a spirit of protest that didn't just advocate for a political policy outcome, but transformed the conscience, mm-hmm. the very conscience of American society, at least to a fundamental way. But you didn't need that many. You didn't need 51 percent to do that. Right. Yeah. And so we can do a lot with a little in terms of bringing folks into a movement to transform the heart of the country. 
I do not see John Wood Jr. as a provocateur, but I can assure you his program will be provocative. Um, <laughs> I'm always fascinated when I when I speak with him, and we, we've had a number of conversations over the years, and uh, when, we, when we get into it, it's a beautiful thing, and maybe one day I'll appear on your Sunday morning program. Uh, <laughs> and, looking uh, forward to it. And we can go at it. Uh, his name is John Wood Jr. The program is called The Reconstruction Project. It premieres this Sunday, June 25th at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And every Sunday thereafter at 9 a.m., uh, just uh, before uh, Nick Quartelai-Quarte on A More Perfect Union, just after uh, Dr. Sunshine uh, with her fine program at 8 a.m. So, John Wood Jr., welcome to KBLA. I'm excited about you being here. I look forward to uh, you uh, uh, pushing us and pulling us <laughs> and making us think and, and debate and argue and uh, mm-hmm. have a robust dialogue about the things that matter in our lives. Thank you for coming in today. I'll see you this Sunday. There we go, sir. The Reconstruction Project with John Wood Jr. this Sunday, 9 a.m. on KBLA Talk 15.